Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because if you do, it would be embarrassing. But how many of you have ever been to a palm reader or gone to have your, the tea, tea leaves read or, or gone to, in the 80s, you called the Psychic Friends Network? Um, hopefully none of you did anything like that. But our culture is fascinated with wanting to know the future. Um, our culture is fascinated with the paranormal, with horoscopes, with um, just wanting somebody to, to give them insight into the future. Um, back in 2005, I know it was pretty long ago, Gallup did a poll to discover Americans' beliefs in the paranormal. Okay, so this is a little old, but I don't, I don't think it's probably changed much. If, if anything, it's probably gotten even higher. So 41% believe in ESP, extrasensory perception. 37% believe in ghosts and haunted houses. 31% believe in telepathy, where people can communicate only by mind and not with words. Telepathy. Now, um, that's a weird phenomenon that, that some people claim to have. 2009, the Harris Poll revealed that 26% of Americans believe in astrology and that the horoscope can predict the future. Now, these are all pagan practices. Pagan practices. But what's scary is how sometimes these have crept into the church. Now, you probably as a Christian won't go see an astrologer or go see a palm reader or go see a psychic, but I have heard Christians say things like this, I'm just going to follow my heart. I'm just going to follow my heart. And then when you tell them that scripture says what you're about to do is not right according to God's word, they say things like this, well, God told me he really wants me to be happy. So I'm going to follow my heart, and I'm going to go rob this bank, or I'm going to go murder this person, or I'm going to go have, you know, whatever big sin it is, I'm going to go do this big sin, and, and I've prayed about it, and I've got a piece about it, because God told me he wants me to be happy, and I'm just going to follow my heart. I have a lot of times over the years people come into my office and say, I want to know God's will for my life. I want to know God's will for my life. Now, as a pastor, can I tell you specifically God's will for your particular life? No. I can give you encouragement, and I can tell you what the Bible says. But oftentimes it's funny because somebody may like be living in major sin, and they come in and they want to know God's will for their life. And, and, and so I, I tell them, you've got to stop your sinning first, get that worked out, and then worry about the rest. Because do you think God's going to reveal his will for your life if you're not obeying what he clearly says in his word that you should be doing? Now, here's the thing that gets kind of confusing. Okay, let me ask, let me, let me ask this question. Could there be a time in your life when it appears, appears, that God is giving you an opportunity to do something, and you think, quote-unquote, it's a God thing, 
when actually you look at it, it could actually be a temptation to fall into sin. So here's the big question for today. Hey, Ben, glad you, glad you made it tonight. So here's the big question for tonight. How, well, maybe it would help if I turned it on. How do you discern the will of God? Or to ask it another way, how do you make wise decisions? Okay, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at two chapters in 1 Samuel. We're going to look at chapter 24, and then we're going to skip over 25 and look at chapter 26. And the reason we're going to look at 24 and 25 is because they really tell almost the same event twice. But it's a little different situation. Now, last week, what did we talk about last week? David was betrayed twice. He saved the town of Calah, and they turned on him. The Ziphites, who were his own people, basically gave him up to Saul. They turned on him. And if you remember, what did David have to do? He had to run up into the hillside to get away from Saul. He goes to this oasis place called En Gedi, and that's where he wrote the psalm that we looked at last week where he cried out to the Lord to be his help. Okay, So David does get a little bit of rest, but not for long. So what I want to do tonight as we look at these passages of Scripture is I want us to see four things that reveal David's heart and his belief system. Because remember, David is a man after God's own heart. So we're going to look at four big ticket items tonight, four things about David and his heart. And then as we look at David and how he responded, we're going to make it practical and ask the question to you. Okay, and after we look at those four things, okay, so we're going to look at these four things. After we do that, I'm kind of telling you where we're going tonight. We are going to look at six principles for decision making. How do you make decisions biblically? Okay, so if you have your Bible, let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel 24. And let's just read verses 1 through 7. And this is right on the heels of where we ended up last week. So David is in the stronghold of En Gedi. He writes that psalm that we looked at last week. And so let's pick up in chapter 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines... He was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rock. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here's the day. Of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Okay, so here you have it. Didn't think you'd have these graphic details in the Bible, did you? Okay, so David and his men are way back in the cave, hiding in the darkness. And Saul, kind of a, 
I guess he doesn't have a bodyguard. He goes in there to basically, you know, go to the bathroom. And he's by himself. And David's men are hiding there with David. And this is a perfect storm, right? This is the perfect opportunity. If there ever was a perfect opportunity to take out Saul, it is now. So this must be God's will, right? Because it's just laid right there in David's lap. Must be the opportunity. And that's what David's men think. So what do they, what do they say to David? There in verse 4. David's men said, Here's the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I'll give your enemy into your hand. You shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Basically, David's men are saying, Now's the time, David. Go murder Saul. He's vulnerable. He's going to the restroom. He has no bodyguards around. He doesn't know we're here. Go take him out. And so what does David do? At first, he's like, okay, this is, this is a good idea. So he creeps stealthily, stealthily over there. And what does he do? He cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, what's the symbolism of cutting off the corner of Saul's robe? Do you remember the very first night we met? Well, we, not the first night we met, but the first night we started the life of David? What happened symbolically to Saul when he had been rejected by the Lord? Samuel tore his robe. So we've seen the tearing of a robe or the cutting of the robe. It was a symbol of Saul's kingdom being taken away from him. And so what this was... When David cut the, when David cut the, you might think, why did he cut the corner of the robe? What's the significance of this? His cutting or ripping the robe was a very aggressive and symbolic way of showing that he was now in power. And the transfer of the kingdom was being ripped out from underneath Saul and given to him. So that's what David's doing here. I'm in charge now. His kingdom's been cutting away. I'm going to cut it away. The transfer of power, I'm the one who's the true king. Now, immediately, because David's a man after God's own heart, immediately, what happens to David? What does it say there? Verse 5. Afterward, David's heart struck him because he cut off Saul's corner rope. David is struck with conviction. David knows what he did was wrong. Exodus twenty two twenty eight, You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. If David is going to obey God's word, he knew that he could not curse an anointed leader of Israel, the king. And cutting the corner of the robe was a symbolic way of cursing or going against Saul. And so when David realizes what he does, he's under deep conviction. He knows he's gone too far. He knows he's wrong. But what do the men want to do? The men are like, this is your opportunity to kill Saul. You should have gone all the way and done it. Why did you just cut the corner of the robe, David? Now, you don't get this in your English translations, but in verse 7, David persuaded his men with these words. David persuaded. Literally, in the original Hebrew text, it means David ripped into them. He ripped into them. He basically says, listen guys, this is wrong. 
we're not going to kill Saul. He's the Lord's anointed. It's not the right time yet. Yes, I'm the rightful king. Yes, this looks like an opportune time. Yes, Saul is vulnerable. Yes, Saul is wicked. Yes, Saul needs to have the kingdom torn out from him, but I'm not the one to do it, and now's not the time to do it, so stop. I've been convicted. What I did in cutting the robe was wrong. Let's stop it now. Men, let's stop it. We can't go any further. So what's the first thing we see here with David? When he does something sinful... Under deep conviction, he repented from a very specific sin that went against God's word. Do you see why David is a man after God's own heart? He's convicted. He's sensitive. He realizes immediately what he does is wrong. He repents. And not only does he repent, but he stops the men from doing it. My heart is struck. This is wrong. I'm under conviction. God's word clearly says, don't touch the anointed. Don't kill one of God's leaders. Don't curse him. I have ripped the robe. I've symbolically been aggressive towards Saul. I have sinned. Even when it looks like it's, a, it's an opportune time. There's a little bit of peer pressure going on here, isn't there? Because what are the men saying to him? This is obviously, God's given you this opportunity. This is the day of the Lord. This is a God thing. David, follow your heart. It's a God thing. I'm kind of paraphrasing here. So here's the application for, for us tonight. When you sin against God's clear word, are you like David quick to confess and repent? I mean, this was quick for David. It wasn't like a long, lingering, it was like immediately he was under conviction. So when you sin against God's clear word, are you quick to confess? So let's look at a couple of scriptures here that talk about confession of sin. Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. God, I'm not going to cover it up. God, I'm not going to downplay it. You know I've done it anyway. Do you guys know what the word confess means? It means to agree with God. That's what the, the Greek word confess, homo legeo, means to say the same word or to agree with God. Basically, when you're confessing sin, you're saying, God, I agree with you that what I've done is sinful. I'm owning up to it. I'm not covering it up. I'm not hiding it. I'm going to be quick to confess my sin. I'm not going to cover it up. Psalm 38, 18, I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. David was quick to confess. And then Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. When you try to cover your tracks, when you try to hide, when, when, you, when, you never, when you don't come clean before God, it says there you're not going to prosper. That's, that's, you're, you're not going to get spiritual traction. It's going to keep you in that state of guilt. And, but if when you confess, you'll, you'll be forgiven. And then we've got that promise from 1 John 1, 9. 
If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what David's friends, his men, thought was a God thing, a perfect opportunity to take out Saul, and David kind of goes for it, doesn't go all the way, but cuts his robe. He immediately knows this is sinful. I'm going to repent, I'm going to hold these men off, and I'm going to be quick to confess my sin before God. So that's the first thing we see about David here is he immediately, when he, when he sins against God, he immediately confesses. Now, I want you to remember David at this point in his life. This is before he becomes the actual king of Israel. Because what happens later on after he's king of Israel? He has sex with Bathsheba and has her husband killed. And he tries to cover it up. Okay? So at this point in David's life, he is standing up for what is right in the midst of peer pressure. He could have followed those men and said, yeah, I'm going to go with what these men said. I'm going to take their counsel. Let's take out Saul. But he's strong. He holds fast to what the word says, and he, he, he holds them back, and he confesses his sin, and he doesn't go any further. So let's keep reading and find out what happens. So let's pick up in verse 8, verses 8 through 15. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he's the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or reason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wickedness comes wickedness but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Now, David makes himself known. How do you think, how do you think Saul felt at that moment? Whoa, I thought I was going in there just to use the restroom, and all of a sudden David comes out, and this could kind of be scary. And so what does David basically do? David pleads his innocence and, listen, and says, Listen, Saul, I'm going to come clean here. I could have very easily taken you out, but I did not. Because I know what God's word says. You're the anointed king. You're the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to touch you. See, I've got proof here in my hand. I've got the, the corner of the robe that I cut off from you without you even knowing it. I could have slit your throat as opposed to slitting this, the corner of your robe. I'm innocent here. Why are you chasing after me? Why are you running after me? I do not wish you any harm. Can we just stop this whole thing of you, you hunting me down? I had every opportunity to take you out. I did not. I am innocent. Now, what you see in verse 12 is David's heart. What does he say in verse 12? 
May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. What's David saying? I'm not going to take matters into my own hand. I'm not going to take your life. I had every opportunity to take your life. If I'm going to leave it up to God at this point. Let God be the one that's going to fight my battles. Now, think about the mental state of David at this point. What, what did we look at last week? He had been betrayed twice. The city of Calah betrayed him. The Ziphites betrayed him. Saul tried to pin him to the wall on multiple occasions with a spear. He could have said to himself, David could have said, You know what? This dude deserves to be killed. And I'm going to do it right now. He's got it coming to him. Who does he think he is? I've been running around. I'm the one that's been betrayed. I'm the one that's been having to hide up in the hills. I'm the one that was anointed by Samuel. I'm the rightful king of Israel. This guy has no right to even live. I'm going to take him out. What was David's attitude? I am not going to lay my hand against you. May God be your judge. If there's going to be vengeance or if God's going to take you out, if there's going to be something to sort out, let it be God that does it in his own time, in his own way. So what's the application for you? This is the second thing we see about David. First, he was quick to confess his sin. Here, he's quick to let God sort out his problems. So here's the application. When you've been wronged, Do you take justice into your own hands, or do you leave it to the Lord to sort it out? That is really difficult, isn't it? If you've been stabbed in the back, if you've been sinned against, if you've been wronged, what's what's our natural inclination? I want to get revenge. They've got to pay, and I want to make sure they pay. But David says, listen, let God sort it out. Romans 12, 19. We looked at this last week too, but we'll look at it again this week. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Don't take out revenge. Don't go try to right the wrongs on your own. Let God sort it out. Now, this is very hard because what happens if you never see justice and that person gets away with it? Does that mean that they're going to get away with it forever? Does God have to give justice in this life? No. Sometimes he does. Oftentimes, we have to wait till the end of the age when God will right all the wrongs. That's why it's so difficult, because sometimes we want to take matters into our own hands, take vengeance, and when we don't see God acting the way we want Him to, we think that God has failed us or God is not fast enough, and so we want to be the ones to repay. Hebrews 10, 30-31, For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I'll repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. David basically said this, Saul You are going to fall into the hands of the living God, but I'm not going to touch you. Let God's hand be upon you. I'm not physically going to hurt you. I'm innocent. I could have killed you. I didn't. Stop chasing after me. If there's going to be any justice, if there's going to be anything, I'm leaving it up to the Lord. That's pretty bold of David, because what could have Saul done at that moment? 
off with his head. I mean, Saul could have killed David right there. What could have David done? He could have snuck off into the night and never confronted Saul. Saul would have never known that David cut the corner. Saul comes out of the bathroom, looks down like, what happened to my robe? I must have got it torn on a rock or what, what happened here? David didn't have to come out and reveal himself. But David does that to make a point. I'm innocent. I'm not going to take vengeance. I have been wronged, but I'm going to leave it to the Lord to sort out. Okay, so those are the first two things we see about David. All right. As we keep reading here, the rest of the chapter shows Saul demonstrating some contrition. But we're not really sure if, it's, if he's pretending or if he's honest. So it gets a little confusing. Is, is Saul putting on an act or is he really sorry? So let's keep reading. Let's pick up in verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You're more righteous than I, for you've repaid me good, whereas I've repaid you evil. And you've declared this day how you've dealt with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you've done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. What's Saul saying here? Kind of shows a little bit of repentance. Like, David, you're more righteous than me. You are, you are innocent. You could have killed me and you didn't. And notice what, this is the first time Saul says something. What does Saul say? David, you're the rightful king. And I'm not threatened by that. All I ask is that my offspring after me you don't destroy. And David swears and says, I won't do that. And then they go their separate ways. So you see a little bit of, it's kind of ambiguous. Is Saul truly being contrite here? Is Saul kind of putting on an act? Saul doesn't kill David. Saul admits that he was the one that was wrong, hunting down David, realizes David's innocent, says you had every right to kill me, you didn't. David, you're the rightful king. They go their separate ways. Okay? All right. Let's skip over chapter 25. Whoops, I guess I'm getting behind on the slides. Let's skip over chapter 25. You can, you can go back and read that. Again, what I said last week is we can't do every single chapter in First and Second Samuel. Or we'll be here till like the middle of summer. And I've got to pick and choose what we're studying. So we're going to see the same thing happen, but in a different context. Okay, so this is very interesting. Now, remember the Ziphites. Who were the Ziphites? The Ziphites. They were the people last week that betrayed David. They're from David's clan. They're from Judah. They're kind of close cousins of David. They've already betrayed him once. What did the Ziphites do? Hey, Saul, David's hiding up in the caves there. You, you can find them up there if you take your men up there. So David's already been betrayed by the Ziphites once. Now he's going to be betrayed 
by the Ziphites a second time, and this time Saul comes after David with 3,000 men. Okay, so let's pick up in chapter 26. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakliah, which is on the east of Yeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the, in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakliah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him in the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Okay, what did the Ziphites say to Saul a second time? Hey, Saul, David's hiding up here in these hills. You can go up there and find them. So Saul takes 3,000 men. They camp out, and he falls asleep next to Abner. Now, Abner is basically his commander, his general. So you've seen the movies. They're in camp. There's probably a bunch of tents King Saul's in his tent, and his army commander's sleeping right next to him, i.e. his bodyguard. David sends spies down to find out if it's true. And what do we find out? David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner while the army was encamped there. Now, let's pick up and find out what happens this time. It's almost exactly the same thing that happened in the cave. Now it's in the encampment when they're about ready to go after David. So let's keep reading. This is, let's read 6 through 12. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into the battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that's at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Okay, this time, it's not in the cave, but it's in the camp. And Abishai decides to, so basically Abishai is David's nephew. They, they decide to go down to where Saul's sleeping. And just like the men in the cave tried to tempt David to take Saul's life, Abishai, what does he say in verse 8? 
He says, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Let me strike him once with the spear. I don't have to do it twice. I'll just strike him once. But notice the, the saying, God. This it, is a God thing. God's given you this, David. This is your opportunity again. You blew it in the cave. You should have killed Saul then. He's given you a second chance. Go for it. As a matter of fact, David, I won't even, you don't even have to be the one to kill him. I'll do it for you. I'll spear him. Look, David, it's got to be God's will because he's given you a second chance to make it right. Now, David's a man after God's own heart. The first time, what did he do with the peer pressure? Guys, stop. This is not God's will. I'm not going to do it. What does he say to Abishai? Almost exactly the same thing. You see David's theology. You see David's heart in verses 9 and 11. And it's almost the exact same thing. In verse 9 he says, Do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die, or he will go down in battle and perish. But Lord forbid that I should be the one to kill him. So what is David saying? If Saul's going to die, Saul's going to die. Either God's going to strike him dead, or he's going to die of old age, or he's going to die in battle. But I'm not going to be the one to put him to death, and your Abishai are not going to be the one to put him to death. We're not going to touch him. We are going to let God sort it out. But it's the same temptation for David. It's a temptation that he saw in the cave. He looked at the supposed God thing. Notice how in both situations they said, it's a God thing. The Lord's given you this thing. It was so clear about what he should do. God's put it right in your lap, David. But he knew that in killing Saul, not only would he be sinning, but he would be shortcutting God's plan for his life. Okay? If David had killed Saul, he would have not only sinned, but basically would have tried to speed up God's plan. Because what was God's ultimate plan for David? To be king. David, it reminds me a little bit of the temptation that Abraham and Sarah had. Remember? God promised Abraham a kid, and he hadn't had a kid. Let's speed this thing up, God. So Sarah says, go have sex with Hagar, your Egyptian slave woman, and they bear son Ishmael, because they're getting impatient with God. They want to speed things up. Okay, now, here's the frustration I have. I do not like to watch commercials. I do not like to watch TV in real time. That's why I have a DVR on my DirecTV, so I can fast-forward through the commercials because I'm impatient. I just want to get past things. I want to I fast-forward through the commercials. How many times are you tempted to fast-forward through the commercials of your life to get to the end that you think you should be at? And God may be saying, no, I'm not going to have you hit the fast-forward button on the remote control. You're going to have to go through it. You're going to have to walk through it. You're not going to shortcut my plan for your life just because you're impatient. I've got a plan for you. So when God says wait, 
When God says be patient, he's growing our character. He takes us through trials and sufferings to grow our character. So at this point in David's life, he had a, he had a huge temptation. He could have been impatient with God and taken matters into his own hands and tried to speed up God's plan for his life by killing Saul. It would be so much easier for David to kill Saul because then right then he could be king. But instead, he resists the temptation of taking matters into his own hand and trying to find a shortcut with the remote control. Instead, he waits for God's timing. So let's ask the application question for you. What's the application for you? Are you at times trying to force God's hand or shorten His plan for you instead of patiently waiting on Him to sovereignly act according to His purposes and not yours? I will be the first to stand up and raise my hand and say, I'm an impatient man. I want things done yesterday. I don't like to wait in line. I don't like to, be, to wait behind slow drivers. I don't like, I'm in a very impatient person. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is patience. And sometimes God puts me in the longer line in Walmart. You know, it's, there's an advantage to being tall. Because in Walmart, I can look and see which lines are fast as I'm trying to go. And I can choose to go to self-checkout if I think I can do it fast enough. And then you kind of know, like the other day, I like, okay, that, I, know that, I know that young man's fast. So I decide to get in his lane. I'm like, oh, I'm in the fast lane. Well, the lady in front of me had some type of problem that just kept going on, and I don't know if it's a tax if so I was like, da-da-da-da-da, I'm like, oh, golly, Bob, howdy. God, why did you put me in this line? I thought I was getting the fast one, so I had to wait. Well, heavens to Murgatroyd, Sean, you had to wait five more minutes in the Walmart line. That's the end of the world. And to me at that moment, it was the end of the world because I had to wait because I'm entitled to get there faster and everybody else needs to speed up and I need to get through this line and why in the world am I having to do this? Anybody ever been there before? <laughs> okay, so when we try to speed up God's plan or we like to take matters into our own hands, God may be saying, let's put the brakes on this because I'm teaching you patience. God may be saying, I want you to go through this so that you don't have a coronary because you have to wait. I'm growing, your, I'm growing your patience. So Galatians 5, 23-23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. And then Colossians 1, 11. Paul prays that we would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Now, come on, Paul, you didn't have to say that, patience with joy. You could have just said patience. Why did you have to add joy there? Patience with joy. Joyful patience. And then Colossians 3.12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. David could have been very impatient and said, I'm speeding this thing up tonight. We're killing Saul and we're moving forward with the kingdom. 
but he doesn't. Now, what does David do, though? He takes a spear in the water jug. Now, like, what's the purpose of that? The spear was a symbol of Saul's power. So in a sense, David is taking his power. David is, in a sense, taking away Saul's power. So there is still a little bit of, like, what are you doing here, David? All right, let's keep reading and see what happens next. Let's pick up in verse 13 through 20. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great gap between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over the Lord your king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king your lord. This thing that you've done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you've not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and jar of water that was at his head. So what's David doing? David goes to the other side of the hill. There's a huge gap there. And basically, what's he? he's taunting Abner. What's he saying? Abner, you're not a very good bodyguard. You're supposed to protect the king. You're supposed to sleep next to the king. You're not supposed to let anything happen to the king. I snuck in and took his spear and his water. You deserve to die because you're not protecting the king. You're not a very good bodyguard, Abner. This is the second time that Saul has been fooled by me. Let's keep reading. Verse 17. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is that your voice, my son David? And David says, it is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my lord and king hear the words of his servant. If it is the lord who has stirred you against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the lord. For they have driven me out of this day that I should not have a share in the heritage of the lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now therefore let my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. So Saul realizes a second time David could have taken his life. The first time in the cave, the second time in the encampment, and David does not. Now, Let's continue and just read to the end of the chapter. Let's read verses 21 through 25. Then Saul said, I've sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I've acted foolishly. I've made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here's the spear, O king. Let one of your men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all my tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place.
Now again, Saul's confessing sin, I've done wrong, I shouldn't be pursuing you, David. Again, is Saul being honest? Is Saul putting on an act? We really don't know. We have to kind of take it at face value that he's confessing here. But what do we see about David's heart and his belief system in verse 23? Behold, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. David understands that God rewards faithfulness and righteousness for those who obey his word. David did not again kill Saul and sin. When he was about to in the cave, he came under deep conviction and confessed and didn't do it. So David knows in the end. What does David know in the end? Obedience to God's clearly revealed will in his word brings true blessings. So twice David is faced with temptation. Twice David has to stand up to peer pressure. First, it's the men in the cave. Second, it's Abishai. And and it's a temptation to basically take matters into his own hand. And, And it's a God thing. This must be God's will. Let's take Saul out. And in both times, David overcomes the temptation. David overcomes the peer pressure. He knows what's right, and he does the right thing. And he understands that when I do the right thing, when I obey God's will, there is true blessing. Even if it appears like it's a God thing. Even if everybody's telling me I should do it. He knows that it's a clear violation of God's word. Interestingly enough, David knew God's word. His men did not, or they did not act like they did. Abishai did not. Both Abishai and the men were both trying to pressure David to go against God's will. And David said, no, I'm not going to do it. So here's the last application. I said we're going to look at four applications, four things about David. Here's the last application for you as we think about the, uh, the example of David. Do you remain faithful to God's clear written word no matter what the situation happens to be? No matter if there's peer pressure or there's temptation or everybody's doing it or you're the only one out there, do you remain faithful to God's clear written word no matter what? What is God's word? 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Word of God trains you. It corrects you. Are you faithful to the Scripture? And then Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffer. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates both day and night. Do you meditate on the word of God? Here's something that, look at that, look at verse 2. His delight is in God's word. He meditates on it day and night. Let me say it this way. You will meditate on what you delight in. You will think about and spend time in what you delight in. Will it be the things of the world or it will be God's word? What do you truly delight in? What you love, what you delight in, that's where you're going to give your time and attention. And here it says, let it be the word of God and meditate on it day and night. 
And then what does the Word of God do to us? Hebrews 4, 12-13. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from the sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him whom we must give an account. Just a little bit of a side note here. Verse 25 the very last verse there. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. This is the last time David and Saul would ever see each other. The last time they would see each other. Now, I told you tonight we were going to look at these two events in David's life. We were going to look at four truths or four attitudes that David had, application. Now, let's make this even more practical and let's ask the question, how do you discern God's will when it quote-unquote looks like a God thing? Because what were the men in the cave saying to David? This is a God thing. What did Abishai say? This is a God thing. What happens if it looks like a God thing? How do you make wise decisions when it looks like all the stars are lining up in your favor? Do you take the shortcut? Do you wait? Do you take the easy path? Do you take the godly path? So how many of you, don't raise your hands, but how many of you have had, made, had to make a major life decision that pretty, pretty much could have impacted, you know, it was a big, big, big decision, a big life decision. I think all of us have made big life decisions. So let's ask the question, how do you make decisions biblically? So what I want to share for the remainder of tonight is some practical application, six aspects of obeying God's will, or six aspects of decision-making. Now, there is an order to this, but it somewhat overlaps, and so these are just six biblical principles that will help you in making decisions. Because oftentimes, can you find a Bible verse that says, Thou shalt marry Susie. Thou shalt take this career path. Thou shalt buy this house. I mean, there's a lot of decisions you will have to make that there's no clear biblical verse that gives you the exact answer. So you have to take some principles of how do you, how do you make decisions. So here's number one, and this, this is a no-brainer. We talked about it just a minute ago in Psalm 1. Read, meditate upon, and obey the Bible. You need to saturate yourself in the Scriptures. A lot of times people will try to rely upon some mystical way to, to decipher God's will. I've just got this feeling, or I've just got this prompting, or I just kind of feel like God spoke to me. Well, you need to start with where you know it's actually from God. Because you may just have had a bad inch a lot of that day and you're, you're having heartburn and you think it's from the Lord. I mean, how do you know what you're hearing or what you're feeling is from God? How do you know it's God speaking? Because a lot of people will use that term, terminology, hey, James. 
<laughs> a lot of people will use that terminology. Um, God spoke to me. Do you want to hear God's voice audibly? Do you want to know how to hear God's voice audibly? Read your Bible out loud. If you want to hear God speak audibly, read your Bible out loud. So start with the written scriptures. That is God's clear, inspired, inerrant, unchanging word to you. And you cannot go wrong with saturating yourselves in the Scriptures because when you begin to read the Scriptures and saturate yourself in the Scriptures, you begin to have what Paul calls the mind of Christ. Your thinking begins to be informed by the Scriptures and not just what you feel. A lot of Christians these days go by... You notice what I'm hearing a lot lately? And I'm not, I'm not down on you if you say this. Don and I were talking about this the other night. A lot of people use the word, I feel, I feel, I feel. We hardly ever hear people th- say, I think, I think. Now, I'm not down on you. If you come to me and say, Sean, I feel, I'm not going to say, oh, you said I feel. I'm not going to do that to you. But it's amazing how many people are going by there. This is what I feel, and no longer it's this is what I think. And the Bible talks a lot about our, our thinking impacts our feeling. So Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We need to have transformed minds that come from the Word of God. So saturate yourself in the Word of God. Or as Paul would say in Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and psalms and spiritual songs with all thankfulness in your heart to God. So here's the thing. You need to begin to do two things. You need to know the word so well that then you, number two, obey it. You want to know God's will for your life? Know what God clearly says and obey what God clearly says. When you begin to obey what God clearly teaches you, then you will be more apt to know how God may be leading you in other areas. So let me give you an example. I want to know God's will for my life. Okay, let me give you a verse. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Okay, that sounds pretty explicit, right? This is God's will for you. That you abstain from sexual immorality. Each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So this is one example where it says this is God's will. You, you don't have to argue with it. You don't have to haggle with it. It's very clear this is God's will. And so that's just one example. But the more that you begin to saturate yourself in the Bible, the more you begin to think biblically, your mind is saturated in the Scriptures, your your mind is renewed, and so the decisions you make come through a renewed mind, a mind that has been affected by the Scriptures. Okay, So number one, you need to have a renewed mind 
the mind of Christ that comes through saturating yourselves in scriptures. But number two, you and I need to develop a soft heart toward God. We need to have a renewed mind, but we also need to have a soft heart. Mind and heart. A renewed mind and a soft heart. Now, one of the most mistranslated, misapplied, taken out of context psalm that has been used as a blank check to do whatever you want. Okay? Psalm 37, 4 and 5. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. I cannot tell you in my years of ministry how many people over the years have used this verse to excuse bad behavior. God's just given me the desires of my heart. I can do whatever I want. As I'm following my heart. God wants me to be happy, so He's given me the desires of my heart. What this verse, what does this verse not say? Notice what it says. Delight yourself in your pleasure. Does it say that? Delight yourself in your wants. Spend time thinking about what you selfishly want to do. What does it say? Delight yourself in the Lord. That comes first. Delight yourself in the Lord then He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, this does not mean that uh, let's go to the next slide here, make sure I can. Yeah, God will give you the desires of your heart. This does not mean that God will give you what you selfishly want that goes against His will. It does mean that as you spend time reading your Bible and praying, you begin to have your heart changed and softened towards Christ and your mind being transformed and you begin desiring the things that God wants. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, the desires of your heart that the Lord gives you are His desires for you that align with His heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Saturate yourself in Scripture. Develop a soft heart towards God. And as you begin to cultivate that relationship with the Lord, He begins to reveal to you the things that He wants you to do. And those are in line with His will. So, number one, spend time in your Bible. Read your Bible. Saturate yourself in your Bible. Have the mind of Christ Obey your Bible. Number two, develop a soft heart towards God. Delight yourself in the Lord. Commit yourself to the Lord. Pray for a soft and pliable heart. Okay? All right, number three. This is, this is never to be done in a vacuum. Number three, seek wise counsel from godly people. Don't go it alone. That's why there's a church family here. That's why we have elders and pastors that come and help you and shepherd you and walk through this with you. That's why we have people that 
hopefully have people in your life that you can that you can turn to. There are so many proverbs about wise counsel. So Proverbs one five, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. Get some guidance, outside guidance. Proverbs thirteen ten. By insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. Take advice. Proverbs 20, 18. Plans are established by counsel, by wise guidances, by wise guidance wage war. Plans are established by counsel. Have a, have a group of counselors, people, people there. And then Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's why it's important to have a church family, Christian friends, people even, I mean, it's very good for husbands and wives to talk these things through, but sometimes you may need even somebody else to come in and give you wise counsel. And we want to be available as your pastors and as your leaders to help you through that. Um, one of the joys I have as pastor is helping people through making decisions. I, I can't, I've been looking around this room right now and how many people have come into my office over the years and asked for counsel, asked for advice, asked for encouragement, and it's a joy to be able to help, help you through that. So we need to, number one, be in the Word. Number two, have a soft heart to delight ourselves in the Lord. Number three, seek godly counsel. Okay, number four. This is one we have to be a little bit careful with, but I think it's part of God's plan. Look for God's providence in life's circumstances. Now, what do I mean by God's providence? God's providence is His sovereign way of opening and closing doors and doing things in your life that just kind of, oh, okay, this is a clear sign from God. This, is, this needs to happen. There, there are times when it appears that God has providentially provided you with a great opportunity, it's an open door, and it's very clear. And sometimes this can be dramatic or extraordinary. What this means is, and this is, this is, this is assurance, okay? This, is a, this verse is not meant to scare you. This verse is meant to help you. Ephesians 1.11 In Him... We've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. God is working out all things according to the counsel of His will. All things He's working out for you. Okay, so let me give you an example. Some of you have heard this story before, but I'll tell it again. So when I was a youth pastor in Colorado Springs, I had graduated from seminary and I was praying about what I wanted to do next and I knew I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a senior pastor or a church planter and so I had a friend in seminary that was from a big church in Fort Collins and he said, hey listen, we have a, this church in Laporte. You guys know where Laporte is? It's kind of up the mountains, a little bit as you're going up into, into the canyon out of Fort Collins. He said, this church has, has lain empty for about a year. It closed down. We're going to relaunch this church 
we're going to rebrand this church. We want you and Don to think about being the church planners and, and coming in. And so Don and I went there, and we, we kind of met with the church. And there were some people that said, hey, we'd be interested in coming and helping you. And then we went through the whole assessment process where you're being assessed as a church planner. And we did really well. And they said, hey, you'll be great church planners. And, and so, you know, we, we kind of were all excited. And then so um, at this point, just Don and I had gone up there and visited with the church and, and taken a couple trips. The boys were little at this time. I think Aiden at that time was probably like six, um, and Zachary was probably like four. Um, and so we decided, that we're just, you know, we, we kind of had to make a decision of what we were going to do because I was, you know, I, I had to tell my church. I had to make a decision of what we were going to do. And so we decided to take a weekend and go drive up there. And so um, we drive up to the church, in the church, and we get out, and Aiden, as a six-year-old, says, I know this church. Aiden, you've never been to this church. I've seen this church in my dreams. Okay. Now, that could have just been Aiden being Aiden. Who knows what it was? So we kind of drove around the community, and we drove up into the mountains, and we kind of just, and, and, and usually I'm pretty talkative in the car. I'm a talkative kind of guy. I didn't say a lot. And we drove all the way home from Fort Collins to Colorado Springs. And um, I got the kids to bed. Don said, I'm going to go to bed. And I went to go into the living room to pray. So I kneeled down on the couch to pray. And I could not pray. I felt an oppressive something preventing me from praying. And so I got up and I walked past the bathroom back to the bedroom, and I could have sworn there was a demon sitting on the toilet. Now, I, I share this with you to say this doesn't happen to me every day. This is something that's, so I go back, and I lay down, and as I lay down, I feel this pressure. I don't know, I can't explain it, but it's like this pressure that's pushing me into the bed, and I turned to Don. I said, Don, there, there, there's something not right. I know. Don's like, I know. I've been feeling it all day. Call your dad. Call your dad, because my dad's a pastor. Don, it's like midnight. I don't care. Call your dad. So I call my dad, and he's like, Dad, we're freaking out. And he's like, okay, I'll, I'll pray for you. He's like half asleep. So we were, that next day we woke up, and so we, we had a crisis. Our crisis was this. Were we supposed to go, and we knew it was going to be spiritual warfare, or was this God's way of saying you're not supposed to go? Because so, we knew if we went, neither one of us wanted to do it but maybe God wanted us to do it. And we didn't want to be disobedient. And so I, I got some outside counsel from my mentor. I talked to my dad. I talked to another mentor. And then Don and I finally made the decision where we, we, we just basically said, well, this is not God's will. So I called up my friend and said, I'm really sorry, but we don't think this is God's will. And right when I said that, this lifted. Now, let me tell you the backstory. The backstory to this is in the process of that whole time frame, I had submitted my name here to Emmanuel as pastor to the search committee. And I had told the interim, some of you remember Dr. Vedito was the interim pastor. He's, semin he's the seminary director. I told him, take my name out of the running in Emmanuel because I'm going to plant that church in Laporte. And he said, he didn't say anything. So I thought he took my name out. Okay, so, Sunday night, right after all this happens, it's Sunday night, I'm sitting in my chair, and I turned to Don, and I said, the phone's going to ring in about five minutes, 
She's like, what? So the phone's going to ring in about five minutes, and I bet you it's going to be Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling. She's like, Emmanuel, I thought you took your name out of there. I said, I, th- I think I did too. She's like, by the way, where's Sterling again? Well, that's way up there in the northern part of Colorado. <laughs> you know, the northern part. Of, she didn't know where it was. She did, she's, and she's like, Sterling. Okay, five minutes later, guess what? The phone rings. And she looks at me, and she's like, I pick it up. Sean, this is Leroy Whipke of Emmanuel Baptist Church. So, and then that's... It's, then from there, that's how I, I got here. So that's one of those types of situations where God providentially moves things and does things. Now, that's the only time something like that has happened in my life where it was pretty demonic, extraordinary. That doesn't happen to me every day. So I'm not saying that you should expect this to happen every day. There's a danger to think this is, this is how it has to happen. So let me give you some caution here, okay? With that being said, let me give you some caution. These things are extraordinary, meaning they don't happen all the time. They may, and maybe it's happened to you, but don't expect it to be every single time. God is sovereign over how he does this. Okay, secondly, because it's under God's sovereignty, it can't be programmed by some formula. Yeah, go ahead. As far as... Yeah, not Ephesians. I'm talking about what happened to me personally. Yeah, what, Ephesians is that, that is... that is like bona fide, God works all things out. And that's in every detail of your life. Whether it's extraordinary or not, God is working out His sovereign plan and the counsel of His will that is not extraordinary. That's in everyday life. Does, does that help clarify? Okay, yeah. What I'm talking about is the extraordinary event in my, in my life. These, these kind of like big things. Thirdly, don't go seeking these extraordinary events because sometimes they just happen out of the blue. Okay, what I believe is that God is absolutely sovereign And God is going to work out His will. And sometimes that may be through the mundane. Sometimes that may be through the extraordinary. You can't control it. Only God can control it. So, my point is, sometimes... God will open providential doors in extraordinary ways to make His will very clear. Not always, but sometimes. But no matter what happens, God is sovereignly working out his counsel of his will all through it. You may not see how it's all working because God's doing it behind the scenes, but God is working out his sovereign will. Okay, let's go to number five. Yes. Right. Yeah, be cautious. Yeah. Number five, use good judgment. Um, I don't necessarily have a Bible verse for this, but all I can say is God gave you a brain, so use common sense. Um, sometimes you just have to realize that in God's common grace, he's given you a brain and you're meant to use it. But l- let me kind of give you just a grid to ask, okay? It's a pretty easy grid. Is it illegal? Is it immoral? Is it unethical? If it's those three things, you probably shouldn't do it. Okay, if it's those three things, I I absolutely shouldn't do it. But 
If it's none of the above, if it's not illegal, it's not immoral, it's not unethical, and there's not really a moral issue related to it, but it's more of like a fit or giftedness, or even everybody else thinks you're crazy, you might want to think it through. Just think it through. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with logically sitting down and making a list of pros and cons. Some people say, that's not very spiritual. Just let the Spirit lead you. Well, sometimes God leads you through that process. All right, and here's the most important thing to remember. This will free you up. Remember that God may interrupt or override your plans. Even if you think you've made a bad choice, it's not the end of the world. You haven't frustrated God's plan for you. If God works out all things according to the counsel of his will, can you thwart God's working out all things according to the counsel of his will? No. So let me give you another story. So I grew up in Texas before I moved to Colorado. Moved to Colorado when I was 15, but when I was a little kid, I always wanted to go to Baylor University. For some strange reason, it was like, I wanted to go to Baylor, a Baylor bear. Everybody in my church, you know, they, they all went off to Baylor. And so I had two choices facing me as a college or as a high school student. The other choice was Oklahoma Baptist University. Okay? I went and visited OBU, Oklahoma Baptist University. And it was a smaller school, it was a cheaper school, and it was probably the better fit. I actually felt very comfortable there when I went and visited. And I knew in my heart of hearts, I probably should have gone to OBU. But in my pride, I said, I need to go to Baylor because that's where I always wanted to go and it's more prestigious. Because I was a pretty competitive kid. My best friends in high school were going to the Air Force Academy. They were going to Stanford. They were going to Harvard. They were going to Princeton. They were going to Brown. They were going to all these Ivy League schools. I mean, they weren't going to CSU and CU. They were going to the, like, the big time. And so I'm thinking, I at least got to go to Baylor. I mean, that's somewhat of a, you know, Oklahoma Baptist University doesn't sound very prestigious. And so you can't go there, Sean. And so... I knew in my heart of hearts I should have gone to OBU. My parents knew I should have gone there too, but they did not say anything until after the fact. So I went to Baylor, first semester of my freshman year, and I absolutely hated it. It was miserable upon miserable. I did not make any friends. I did not get involved in any clubs. I mean, it was so depressing that I would eat alone in the dining hall and I'd come home at night and watch Twin Peaks. This was when Twin Peaks was on TV. I'd watch Twin Peaks in the, the, in, in, the, in the student lounge with nobody else in there with me. This is a really cool existence for an 18-year-old kid. And so I thought I'd blown it. I thought, how did you miss God's will? How did you mess up? What in the world's going on? And so I decided that I was going to come home. This is done. So my dad came to get me at semester. My dad drove out, got everything packed out. So I had time to drive home from Waco, Texas, back to Colorado Springs with my dad. And I'll never remember, it was a wonderful trip that I had with my dad. Of course, my dad's a pastor. And my dad said something very profound. He said, Sean, oftentimes we don't talk about God's sovereignty much. But God is sovereign over your life, and you haven't messed up God's plan. You may think you messed up God's plan, but you did not. God has a plan, and you can't frustrate it. So let's figure out what's next. 
Well, what happened is I ended up staying at home, saving money, going to the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and meeting my wife, and the rest is history. So just because you make a decision that you think is the right thing, and it turns out to be the wrong thing, you haven't blown it. You haven't got God. You, you can't frustrate God's plans. Now, you may have done the wrong thing, but don't think that God's not sovereign enough to get you back on track. So even when you make a bad decision, when you think you, even if you, if you line everything up and you make the decision and it's wrong decision, don't think you've ruined it for the rest of your life. God can get you right back on the path. Proverbs 16.9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Amen. I may have a plan, and I may have my heart set on a plan, but ultimately God is the one that establishes my steps. So it requires discernment. We need godly discernment. We need wise counsel. And Paul prayed for our discernment. In Philippians 1, 9-11, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God, that you may abound with knowledge and discernment. So wisdom, wisdom. What makes wisdom Christian? Because you can go to Dr. Phil or Dr. Oz or Dr. Laura or Oprah and get quote-unquote wisdom. You can go to a secular therapist and they can give you wisdom. They can give you advice. And I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. But what is the source of our wisdom? Or actually, let me ask it a different way. Who is the source of our wisdom? 1 Corinthians 1.30 And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus Christ is our wisdom. And he's given us the Holy Spirit to live within us to help us make wise decisions. And so, really, when we talk about true wisdom, only because of what Jesus has done, can we truly have discernment to make wise choices? And everything comes back to the glory of Christ. And so here's the ultimate question you need to ask. Does it bring glory to Jesus? That should be our ultimate question. If you can't say yes to that question, then you may need to think it through longer. You know, 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I have counseled young people that are in aberrant, sexual, deviant relationships that claim to be Christians, that have grown up in church. And the saddest thing for me is I will look them in the eye and say, I'll just cut to the chase. Is what you're doing glorifying to God? And either they can't answer it or they won't answer it or they'll say things like, well, this is what, I'm just following my heart and God wants me to be happy. Didn't ask you if God wants you to be happy. Not, didn't ask you if you're following your heart. I am asking you, does this bring glory to God? And not one has ever said yes. Because they know they can't say yes. So they're living in denial. 
because their happiness is more important than God's glory. So, we've got about 10 minutes left tonight for questions or comments or observations. Um, what are some questions you guys may have? And, and Trina, are there any questions on the live stream? Yes, Ben. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and Yeah, the Proverbs personifies wisdom as a woman. But there's two women in Proverbs. There's a, there's also another woman called Folly that cries out and tries to get you off the path. And so yeah, in, in Proverbs, yeah, it's kind of like it's kind of a poetic way to have wisdom as a is a desired lady to be treasured. And then you come to the New Testament and wisdom is wrapped up in who Christ is. He is our wisdom. Yes, Shauna. We don't know what his reasoning was as he went down there. And I, I think, if I can read between the lines, I think he still struggled, struggled with a little bit of that temptation. Like, why would you go down there again? He should have just stayed back. I mean, because what were you going to do? Unless he just wanted to, like, unless he, wanted to, like, unless he was playing with Saul. But, again, but then his heart was like, I can't kill him. So I guess, we, I mean, there's some things the Bible doesn't say we can't get into the psychology of David, but we could maybe think through that it could have been just a, this is his battle with temptation. And he won in the face of peer pressure. Because obviously he, something moved him to go down there and want to, want to see what was going on. I don't know if that I don't know if we know the answer to that, Shauna. That was a sin, yeah. Both. Because think about this, Shauna. What came first, the heart or the action of cutting the robe? The heart. The heart led him to do the action. So he committed the sin, but it came from the heart that wanted to. So when you confess and repent, you're not only confessing from the action you did, but also from the heart behind it. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe somebody smarter than me can give that answer. Kevin, you had a, did you have a question? Okay. Okay, well, my definition to meditate. Okay, so, yes, um, and by the way, I'm not trying to plug my book, but I got extra copies of my book, and in one of the chapters on Scripture saturation, I do address me meditation. So, in the Old Testament, the word meditate means to, m to murmur out loud, to like really say it out loud over and over again. It's not Eastern meditation where you clear your mind and you're like, oh, oh. it's not a clearing your mind, it's a filling your mind. So I would say meditation is an extended, concentrated thinking, pondering, chewing, saturating on a small passage of Scripture 
so that it, it's going around in your heart, it's going around in your mind, you're thinking about the implications, you're thinking about the applications, you're thinking about the truth, and it's, 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 you've so thought about it and meditated on it that it, it, it's just something that you have just put that, that energy into. Does, it, does that make sense? Okay. Did you have a question, Andrew? Okay. Yeah. No, David is not Saul's son. That's more just a term of, like, respect. Like my, you know, like... Not as li- Dave, Jonathan is David's literal son. It's more of like a, a title of respect, like... Yeah, does, that, does that make sense? Yeah. 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 It's, he had, because if you remember before, we didn't look at this before, Saul did take David into his family, sort of, to sing to him and to play for him when Saul had those tormenting spirits until Saul would, like, throw the spear at him. So he did have it, Saul and David did have a friendship earlier and that's why he called him. He was kind of like a son. He took him in. He was the same age, probably around his son um, Jonathan's age. So, be kind of like if your dad had a kid that would like your 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 dad. You have a son, and your son has a friend that's really close, and they hang around all the time. That kid, even though he's not your son, he may be like a son to you because he's around you so much. That's kind of how. Yeah, yeah. Now you have a. Did that answer your question, Ben? Okay. Well, because there is also a stipulation for, yes, eye for eye, but you can't do it against a ruler. That Leviticus passage I said, do not curse a ruler. So there, even if you did do that, sometimes you'd have to go to a city of refuge. Um, So even if you wanted to take revenge, the scriptures gave a stipulation that you could not touch a ruler or somebody that God had anointed in a position of authority. Does, does that make sense? And that's why David didn't do it, because the scripture there said you can't, you can't touch someone that God has put in authority. Yes, Carol. Yeah, well, you don't like our ruler? Touch not the Lord's anointed. No, I'm just, no, there's a fi- that's a fine line, Carol. Okay, so let's talk about that. There is a difference between the position of president and the man who holds the office and has the policies. I think you should pray for our president. I think you should respect the office of the president. But I don't think it's, I, if he's doing something ungodly or he has a policy that's unbiblical, I think you have every right as a citizen king in our nation that makes you a citizen king. He's not a king. He's just an elected official. You have a right to express a grievance or have freedom of speech to say, I don't like the policies that he's doing, even though I respect the man and I respect his office. Does that make sense? 
we just need to be real careful. One of the things I think we need to be real careful with, especially as evangelical, conservative, Bible-believing Christians, we can get to a point where we speak so evilly against our leaders that we fail to pray for them. I don't think we have a right to speak evil if we're never going to pray for them. <laughs> That's where you just got to ask the Lord. I mean, I think that you can pray. I'm not going to bind your conscience on how you should pray. I just, I mean, it's between you and the Lord how you pray for her. You can pray for him, you can pray for the president to succeed or you can pray for the president to be humbled or to be surrounded by counselors that will give him godly counsel. All right, two minutes left. Anything else? All right, let's pray. I assume there was nothing on live stream. Okay, good. We don't have time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture that we have tonight in David's life. And Lord, we do see the heart of David, that he, he was quick to repent. He didn't want to take matters into his own hand. He trusted in your sovereignty and your timing, and he did the right thing. Even when it appeared to be, quote-unquote, a God thing, he knew the right thing to do. Lord, help us to make wise decisions. Help us to be saturated in the Scriptures. Help our minds to be renewed transformed. Help us to have soft hearts for you. Help us to surround ourselves with godly counselors. Help us to understand that you're sovereign over all things and that you're working out your will and that even if we make a mistake or we we go down the wrong path that hasn't frustrated your plan, you are absolutely sovereign. So give us that assurance. Um, Help us just to be drawn closer and closer to you as you lead us. Um, And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.